0: Good morning and greetings to each of you in the Master's name this morning. It's good to have some visitors with us and some old friends with us. So, welcome to our service. May we worship together. For those of you who have King James Bibles, open to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going through a series of messages on Separation and nonconformity. These are some theme verses that I picked out. And so those of you with King James can read with me. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. I don't know if you were paying attention to the song there, before the announcements, break thou the bread of life. The last line, thats I really like that song. It has a lot of, of power in the message of that song. The last line says, Heeding the holy word, I win the strife. And uh, some of you were here when I gave an introduction to this series. I believe this is the eighth message on it. And I said in that message that separation is... understanding separation is a key to victory in the Christian life. Heeding thy holy word, I win the strife. Because we're directed by something different. These people here in Hebrews chapter 11 were directed by something different than the people around them. And that's kind of how I finished the message. Uh, My last message was, which was on how we live. And I said, or I, I brought us to the point where the fullest life comes out of living the word. And I had this question. How committed are you to understanding and following the author of this book? The title of the message this morning is, I love you. What does that mean? Many of you have probably said, I love you to someone. What does that mean? There are a lot of different ideas in our culture about what love is. And I'm not going to so much look at that specifically this morning. I don't want to. I want to look more at the truth than I do at the ideas around us. But the foundation of our relationship with God is covenant. So we have believers have are to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And that love is grounded in commitment. It's in covenant. Therefore, because of that, the foundation of proper relationships is commitment. From a biblical perspective. The message this morning is about relationships. And in that commitment, there are two basic components. One is truth, and the other is love. <laughs> Ephesians four fourteen and 15 say this, "...that we hef- henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ." So the context of these verses these two verses, is the different gifts that are given to the brotherhood. It's a passage on the church there in Ephesians 4. And gifts are given to the brotherhood to build those relationships, to build relationships within the brotherhood. There's two things I want to point out. First of all is that in verse 15, Christ is the ideal. Till we grow up to Him who is the head, even Christ. So Christ sets the pattern of the ideal for the church. And a full commitment to Him guides us toward unified relationships. That passage talks about unity as well in the brotherhood. Then, the other thing is communicating truth in love is the avenue to growth toward the ideal. There has to be a communication of truth in love. So both truth and love are imperative to reach the ideal. So why is commitment to truth so vital to relationships? A long time ago, and this is a I believe this is a true story. And I don't remember all the details, but a long time ago I heard about a boy who was and some friends who were swimming in a a farm pond. And one of them got in trouble as he was swimming. And I'm not sure if a friend went in to help him or if he was just in there struggling in the water and another friend grabbed a fence post and threw it into the water so he'd have something to hang on to. And he hit the guy in the head. And he drowned. It doesn't matter how much we want to help. If we don't help in the right way, we're going to do more harm than good. And so, if we want to help people, if we want to love people, if we love people and we want to help them, we're going to have to help them the right way, which is what truth is. It's helping people in the right way. It's doing things in the right way. Also, about truth, and especially truthful speech, it establishes trust. So, relationship is essentially learning to know, two individuals learning to know one another. That's what a relationship is. And the development of a relationship is the interaction between those individuals, that in a step-by-step process, they, more and more of who they are is exposed, and so they learn to know each other as a result of that. This is a, a reciprocal thing, and we are constantly, as we interact with people, we are constantly gauging whether they're open or not open, whether it's safe to say this or to say that, whether this is an appropriate thing to say. As we interact with people, we're constantly doing those things. The more free, the more open, the more we trust, the more ready we are to expose ourselves more, expose more of who we really are. But as soon as we sense wrong action or dishonesty, then we don't really know at that point where we feel like for sure that that person's not really safe because we don't really know if they're who they are saying they are, or we don't really know if what they say can be trusted to be true. So it's like when you just engage with somebody in, that's dishonest. It's like the person has put up something that's not true, that stands between you and who they really are. And you can't see who they really are because this thing that they have put up there is untrue, is in between you and them. And so what is not true breaks down relationships because it breaks down our ability to trust one another. And so, growth in relationships that are dishonest stops because we don't feel safe. We don't feel like we can trust that relationship to open ourselves up, to expose ourselves to one another. The opposite is also true. When you know that someone really wants to help you, when you know that someone can be trusted in their desire to help you, when you know that they're honest about how they feel, then you feel more open to share and to expose yourself and to say, here's something that I'm dealing with. What should I do? And you know that they'll tell you the truth. So how do we live according to the truth in our relationships? Turn to Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> We looked at verses 1 and 2 in the last message. I want to start reading at verse 3 and read to the end of the chapter. Before I start reading, I'm just going to point out this. In verse 2, Paul says that the purpose of the Christian life, the the purpose of surrendering yourself in a sacrifice to God, is not to follow the pattern of the world, but to approve the will of God. That's the purpose. And then, in the following verses, he goes into, uh, let me see, 3 to 21, so 18 verses primarily about relationship. So let's start reading in verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are not are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them in prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to, your, to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, or he who teaches in teaching, or he who exhorts in exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor, that which is, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for for good things in the sight of all men. If it... So there's enough material in, these, in this passage for a couple sermons. But that's not what I want to cover this morning. I want to go over this passage fairly rapidly. I'm going to point out a few things from these verses in relation to our relationships. And I want us to capture the larger picture of practical instruction from God about how to love one another. Verses 3 through 5. Don't be proud in relation to other people. God has given specific value to each one. God has given specific value to each person. Don't lift yourself up. Be humble. Verses 4 to 8. The value God has given to the individual is for the benefit of the whole. God has placed the people around you. For your benefit, and he has put those people in your life to build you up. Verse 9 love is to be sincere, or another way would be to say it would be without hypocrisy. It should be real love, it should be something that is genuine. Verse 10 show affection, give honor to others instead of seeking it for yourself. Verse 11, the way you conduct your business should demonstrate how you serve the Lord. See, that's relating to other people. Verse 12, our response to circumstances sets an example of where our trust is grounded. Verse 13, be quick to share both things and our homes. Be quick to share what God has given us. Verse 14, Someone has to take the first step in doing good. It should be you. Verse 15. Engage yourself in the life of others. Verse 16. Connect with those who have needs as one who also has needs. In verses 17 through 21. God wants evil to be ended. And He calls you as a Christian to stop the cycle of evil and take the steps towards replacing it with a cycle of good. Amen. Like I said, that's an overview. But I want us to catch that picture. God has given us Practical ways to relate to one another that can instruct our lives and can build our relationships. But the key thing about this passage is that it's not about finding perfect people or perfect situations, it's about being the person that you should be. That's how relationships are built. It's not by forcing others to change. It's by recognizing your own responsibility, taking that responsibility seriously and living it out according to God's Word, according to the truth. And we need to be seeking God for how to relate in our relationships in a way that that builds them up and grows them. Not how we can change the other person, and how God's word can change me and how that can affect others around me. You have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Are you a child of God? If you take the name of Christian, you are a child of God. And this passage says, to love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you, that you may be children of your Father which is in heaven. And he goes on to say how he renders to those who do evil good things. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? So your argument could be, well, people who aren't Christians know how to love. Yes. There's a measure of love that's capable that all humans are capable of. But is it godlike love? Is it godly love? That ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven? God-like love is a love that is extended to people who may not reciprocate that love. They may not return that love to you. They may in fact do evil to you despite the fact that you do good to them. So I love you. What does that mean? What's the difference between the love of the public and, and godly love? And by the way, I believe the, the reference to the public in here refers to a group of people that were hated by the Jews because they were often, took more taxes than were they were supposed to. They were Jewish people who... I'm not coming up with the right word. They were tax collectors. They were people who collected Roman taxes. They were Jews who collected Roman taxes. They were hated in general by the Jews because the Jews had a strong national pride. And the Romans stood opposed to that national pride because they were over the Israelites, the Jews. And here were these Jewish people who were betraying their country And not only betraying their country, but taking more taxes than they were supposed to. And so not only were they betrayers, but they were also thieves. And that's largely how they were viewed by the Jewish people. And so Jesus is is using this as an illustration to show that these dishonest people, this dishonest reputation that they had, these people had this bad reputation, could also love. But the love that he was calling him to, his followers to, was a higher form of love than these people were capable of. So thinking about that in a practical way, when I say I love you, are you saying I want your best? Or are you saying you make me happy? because the world bases its meaning of love on the feelings generated by the relationship. So if the relationship is good, or if there's reciprocal love, they say, I love you. But when it's an enemy, they say, I hate you. They focus on the physical pleasure and the security that they receive from the relationship. Godly love is focused on the well-being of others. And it's a love that's focused eternally. Not just currently. Not in the moment. And there's a lot of difference in that. So your commitment to the well-being of others is the level to which godly love is possible in the relationship. So commitment is the foundation. And your level of commitment to their well being will be the level to which you're able to love them in a godly way, in a godlike way, just what godly means. God, in Christ, committed himself by sacrifice for the well being of all men. So he extended his love to all men. He committed himself to that while we were all his enemies. So the call at the beginning of chapter 12 is for you as a Christian to sacrifice yourself for the will of God. And the will of God is the well-being of all men. So the opposite of love is not really hate. It's selfishness because it's selfishness that keeps us from the well-being of others. So the principles that I shared from the scripture to this point are principles largely relating to brotherhood relationships and also um, relationships with people who are enemies. But I believe that these principles apply across all of our relationships because there are times that the people that we love do things that upset us. And what are we going to do with that? So I want to highlight two areas where the concept of love has been quite distorted in our culture. And I want to look at the truth about them about these two areas, and that is, it's not comprehensive enough, but one of them is marriage. And the reason why I want to look at love and marriage is because it is so foundational to community and culture. I'll touch that a little bit later, but the other one is sexuality. So marriage and sexuality are designed by God and in Genesis and that's the foundation or the the structure of that is in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God lays out his creation. And our sexuality is one of the most powerful parts of our humanity. And I have proof of that when I take billboard calls, well over 75% of the calls that I take bring up sexuality in some form. So more than three quarters of the time that I pick up the phone, I talk to someone about some aspect of sexuality on that call. God designed that to exist between one man and one woman within marriage for life. And he didn't make a mistake when he did that. He had a purpose for doing that. When nurtured and protected, our sexuality within marriage is a glue that bonds a marriage together. And don't read love into anything that is outside of God's plan because it's not love. It's lust. Self-indulgence is outside of our created purpose. It degenerates our character and our sense of value in ourselves. When we give in to lust, in many forms, not just this form, but in in any form, when we give in to lust and, and live outside of God's plan, it degenerates our sense of value in ourselves. And also our sense of character. It degenerates our will to be something that we know we should be. And because our sexuality is such a deep part of who we are as human beings, it must be protected very carefully because it's such an important part of who we are. It also has such an important role in affecting the way we think about ourselves, the way we relate to, to ourselves. And because... The state of marriage is so foundational to community and culture. It is vital to maintaining godly living, godly life, godly community. It's vital for the future of a people who would serve God. Back in the 1990s, there was a basketball star named Dennis Rodman, and Trey found some base, some basketball cards yesterday, or Cade, one or the other, and they had a Dennis Rodman card in the group of, in the pack of cards that he, that he found. Anyway, I knew this guy, and he I didn't know him personally. I knew of him when he was a player. And he had a string of wives, some of which he spent days only days with after he married him before they got a divorce. And I remember reading in the Reader's Digest a kind of comic thing about different marriage proposals, and they had his name in there, and they said that his marriage proposal was, you're the one I want to spend the rest of my week with. We're thinking about Commitment. What's the foundation of marriage? You see, the reason why couples live together without getting married is because they don't love each other enough. They don't have enough foundation of commitment to commit themselves fully to the other person. They want to keep a little bit of a door open that if someone comes along that's prettier or nicer, or better that we can just move on the reason why people divorce is because they don't love each other enough do you have to find the perfect person to have a good marriage what are the principles of good relationships it's not about changing the other person it's about being the person that you should be. Amen. One of the things that we want more than anything else is for someone to know us as we are and still love us completely and unconditionally. And we know that we have faults, we know that we have failures, we know that we're incomplete, and yet we long for someone to love us anyway. And for us to be able to be honest with those, that person. And for them still to love us. And when we fail, to be able to say, I failed. And they'll still love us. Because we're made in God's image. And God made us so that He could be known. And so we also want to be known. And life commitment in marriage establishes a secure place to work through the difficult things of life. An atmosphere where love can flourish both for husband and wife and also for the children. And I'm not saying much about brotherhood even though that's part of it too because I want to talk about brotherhood relationships in another message in the future. but it's commitment brothers and sisters it's commitment to one another and to our well-being and to be willing to stick through it to stick to it through thick and thin that creates the atmosphere where love can flourish and complete commitment to god establishes the ability for us to commit to one another completely There has to be, first of all, at the bottom, or maybe I should say at the top, complete commitment to God. And the deepening of the knowing unfolds the beauty of the relationship. So as you learn to know people more and more deeply, the beauty of the relationship is is able to unfold. something else that's required. And it it comes back to where I started the message, talking about our commitment to knowing the author of this book. Do you have an unreserved faith that taking God's way will be the answer to your problems? 20 years ago, my and Dana's relationship was struggling. 20 years later, I can say from experience that an unreserved faith and commitment to the way of God can heal relationships and make them beautiful. He gives us the power. God wants to unleash the power of heaven into your life. And He is waiting for us to commit. Unreservedly, completely to Him. You know, truth brings restriction. If I get married, then I can't date any other women. But if all I ever have is a dating relationship, then I won't have the depth of marriage. I'm using that as an illustration because God uses that illustration about Christ and the church. If I date Jesus... If my relationship with Him is just, well, I'll get to know Him and see how I like Him. I'll never find the depth of relationship with Him that He longs for. So truth brings restriction into our lives. But that truth is beneficial to finding the best in life. Because remember like Brent said, a man's life doesn't consist of the abundance of things that he possesses. Last of all, I want to just mention, kind of in closing, that we look at the principles here in God's Word. You know that one about heaping coals of fire on their head is probably a good one to to think about in relation to this. What is the Spirit behind the action. Do you want them to feel the heat of those coals? See, that's the wrong spirit. That's not the spirit of Christ. What you want them to feel is the fact that Christ loves them. You want to allow God to be the one to put the heat on them. You want to allow Him to be the one who uses whatever measures it takes. You want to show them the good. I hope that's clear. There's a spirit behind every action that we take. And is the spirit, is our spirit right? We can look at these principles and we can say, okay, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and it's going to fix this relationship. What we really want is not the well-being of the other person. What we really want is my life to be easier because they changed. That's not the right spirit. The spirit of Christ, the humbleness and meekness of Christ in us, the longing for salvation, the self-sacrifice that he was willing to commit to for our redemption is the spirit that we need to reach for continually be reaching for as we relate to other people. Talked about marriage. And there's a lot of other aspects and a lot of other relationships that are very powerful and very meaningful in our lives beyond just marriage. I use that as an example primarily. But one of the things that makes our heritage valuable is, are its roots in biblical obedience. And we can, we can begin to think that our views on things like marriage and, and marriage and divorce and stuff like that are, are impractical and out of, out of date and out of mode. But that biblical obedience, our heritage of biblical obedience has brought a value into our lives that is priceless. And we are a separate people because of that biblical heritage. And I'm not suggesting that heritage alone is the significance. I'm suggesting, I'm bringing to you that biblical adherence is what matters. We need to be people of the book. We need to follow the word of God so that we pass on something to our children. It is worth fighting for. May God help us in our relationships with one another and with those beyond our walls. God bless you. Shall we have a song?